Morning. My name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new today um, and you haven't been with us, man, I want to say welcome. I'm so glad you're here this morning. Uh, it's good to be in the room. And uh, you, if you haven't been here, that means you've probably missed our last four weeks uh, going through our core value series. So it's down, up, in, and out is what we've gone through. And uh, th- that's basically the core of who we are as a family. So I, I'd recommend if you, if you didn't hear those sermons, man, go back to our website or our app Download that and, and listen to those sermons. They're, they're so important, so valuable to help us define like who we are as a church. Well, today, though, this morning, we get to jump into a new series. Uh, and I, I'm so excited about this series because this series will take place in the Old Testament for the next few months. So, so it's a beautiful thing that we get to jump in that. But the, the Old Testament is the first half of our Bible, and yet I think it's probably the most delightful neglected portion of scripture, right? Like we, we don't naturally drift toward the Old Testament when it comes to reading our Bibles. And, and I think part of it is because we think that it's a bunch of boring stories and genealogies and has nothing to do with Jesus. And, and it probably doesn't have a whole lot to do with today. And so I think that that's why it's probably most neglected. But I want to tell you something. God does have a plan and a purpose, and, and, and that's why he did write the Old Testament. Like, he wants us to see his goodness in the Old Testament. And so here's what John 5, uh, 30, verse 39 says. So it's Jesus. He's talking to a group of religious leaders, and here's what he says. He says, you search the Scriptures. So that, at that point was the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Old Testament Scriptures, that bear witness about me. And so wait a minute, you mean to tell me that the Old Testament scriptures talk about Jesus? Yep, they do. They actually talk a lot about Jesus. In fact, the whole entirety of the Old Testament points to Jesus and his gloriousness. So when we're looking at the story of David, what my hope, what my desire is, is that we wouldn't just see David, but that we would see Jesus more glorious and more beautiful than we did before we started the series. And so when we're talking about David in the Old Testament, man, we're going to keep talking about Jesus like we said we would. We're not going to stop doing that just because we went into the Old Testament. And so David's Probably one of the most significant or at least the, the most well-known historical figures in the Bible. And so when we look at David, we're looking at what Israel would consider to be their best king, their, their guy that they've been looking for. And, um, and David's story, though, as king, points directly to our Savior. And, and so as we're doing this, I, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, uh, would you open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 16, because that's where we'll be uh, this morning. Before I jump into that, I want to kind of share some background or some context leading up to this. First Samuel is actually a really long book, and we're skipping, skipping the first 15 chapters. So let me catch you up a little bit on what's been going on up until this point. So, so this book actually talks primarily about God. However, there are three people that it specifically kind of targets throughout the whole thing. And so let me explain them. The first one is Samuel, and then there's Saul, and then David. So let's start with Samuel. Samuel uh, was a prophet called out by God to speak to, God, to God's people on God's behalf. That's, that's who the prophet Samuel was. He had a wonderful mom. She was a worshiper, a prayer warrior, and she believed God set, is going to do what he says he's going to do. She believed that he would provide his anointed king, that that anointed king would come in and redeem and restore God's people. Like She trusted that God would do that. And then So God blessed that faithfulness of hers and gave her the son Samuel. And, and Samuel lived a life with God and walked with God faithfully um, and, and pointed to uh, God for, uh, for God's people. And so in 1 Samuel, it actually says Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And so it just says, man, Samuel, from the day he was born, walked with God. He was with God. And then Saul 
in contrast, Saul uh, was the first human king of Israel. So, so when Saul was anointed as king, it was actually a big deal. Like, you don't want to miss what happened here because it was chapter 8, and what happens is God's people come in, Israel. They're like, hey, we don't want God to be our king. We want a human king like all the other nations, right? So, so when you, when you, can you picture this? This is God's people. They've been walking with God now for a long time, and then God comes. He, they come to God and say, hey, man, you just didn't really fit the bill. I'm going to go ahead. I want to go with a human king, someone smaller, someone that I can probably control and manage a little bit. And, and so that exemplified that the fact that they didn't trust God. They, did, they, did, they, they didn't want him to rule and reign over them. He, they wanted a human king that they can control that might be about their agenda and their plan rather than God's agenda and God's plan. And so as we look forward to that, we see that Saul was anointed as their king. And, and, and actually, Saul was exactly what they asked for. In fact, God would tell them, hey, he's going to be more than you bargained for. And so when they get Saul as king, he is exactly what they had hoped. He was a conqueror. He was a man of war. He made other nations fear the nation of Israel. He, he gathered money. They got wealth. They got fame. They got everything they wanted. In, in, in his resume, it fit the bill perfectly. Saul was a head taller than every other man in Israel. He was beautiful to the eye in comparison to all other men. He had a, uh, he had a wealth because he, he had servants. And, and so when you look at him, you're like, yeah, duh, this makes sense. This guy should be the king of Israel. Clearly, he's the best candidate. He was successful. He was strong, and everybody loved him. Well, the, the problem with Saul, though, was that he wasn't a king that was after God's own heart. He wasn't a king that followed after God and then showed the people where God was. He wasn't a king that obeyed God. In fact, he was the opposite of that. And, and this made the prophet Samuel, who had anointed him, just very sad. It made him mourn over Saul, which is where we're actually picking it up this morning in chapter 16. But, but what I want you to see as we're looking at this passage, that God doesn't use people based upon their, their attributes on the external or what they look like. What he looks at is their hearts. He's not looking for what you do or, or, or how you can accomplish something or what you look like, but he's looking at the heart because Saul had everything that they would actually line up to. Like he, he had everything that you would want in a king except for the heart that would humbly, submissively follow God. And so if you're in the room and you're, you're, you're saying, man, what kind of leadership does God look for? Well, that's He's looking at the heart to find out what kind of leader he would look for. And if you're in the room and you're thinking, man, I'm unimpressive or I'm ordinary, well, good, because I have some really good news for you. And so my first point this morning is ordinary David anointed by the extraordinary God. Uh, it's going to be picking up in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears, me, hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you, that you sh- what you should do. And you shall anoint for me uh, for me, him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And so we start right out the gate. God calls on Samuel and says, Hey, stop mourning over this dude. I got something for you to do. 
Now, now, now when God says that to Samuel, he's not saying that Samuel didn't have room to mourn. Because he actually did. He, he could mourn the death of a dream. Samuel came in as the prophet with a dream that the king that God would anoint, this king would come in as the redeemer, the savior, the, 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 the king that would come in and serve humbly, love graciously, a king that would not use his power over his people as a tyrant, but would come in with love and sacrifice and bless his people. He, he, was, he was looking for a king that would come and, and be a just king and a king that would lift up the poor in the kingdom. He was looking for a king that didn't rule in fear for loyalty, but ruled out of love and that the people would be loyal because of his love and compassion for them. That's what Samuel was looking for. He was looking for a king that would be willing to die for his people so that his people might be willing to die for him. And that's not who Saul was. Saul was actually the complete opposite of that. And so God's saying, man, step away from the dude that I rejected because I have a plan. I'm going to pick a king that's my king and not the people's king. And so he tells him, hey, go up to Bethlehem. And, and so Samuel's not excited about going to Bethlehem, right? Like we see that he's like, hey, wait a minute. Saul's going to cut my head off if I go up there. So I'm not going right now, guy. Like, what do you want me to do with this? Because Sam, Saul's on the throne right now, and you want me to come and anoint another king. That's not going to end well for me. And so God, being gracious, being understanding, says, hey, I'm going to help you out with that. Go up like a prophet usually does and make sacrifices, but then I'm also going to have you anoint a king. And so he's killing two birds with one stone so he doesn't get his head chopped off. And so Samuel heads over to Bethlehem, and the, and the elders come out, and it says that they're trembling. So when you see that, you have to ask the question, why are they trembling? Like, this is a prophet. So a prophet was almost the equivalent of a pastor at that time. So if I walked into, into your neighborhood, you're probably not going to be trembling. Sorry, I'm not that scary. Um, Hey, some of y'all laugh. I don't like that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but no, seriously, though, th- why are they trembling? What I think the reason why they're trembling is because if you look back in chapter 15, something crazy happened. So, so God had commanded Saul to go in and to kill the Amalekite king and everyone else, basically. And what Saul elected to do is do some of that and not kill the king called Agag. And, and so what happens is he basically disobeys God's command and God rips the throne from him. That was kind of the, the thing that turned it on over for him because he didn't obey God. Listen, I think sometimes because we're saved by grace through faith, we think that we're void of responsibility to follow God's commands. And that's actually far from the truth because if we understand his grace and his love, well, then we would have a high view of his commands because we know that his commands come out of love and affection toward us and not a tyrannical rule over us. You see, when you look at God's commands, it's not just a bunch of rules and regulations. It's God's best for you. And Saul didn't see it that way. And so Saul didn't kill King Agag. And so what ends up happening is uh, Samuel actually steps in and finishes the job for him. Let's look at uh, chapter 15, verse 32 through 33. It's right above our section here. I'm going to read it for you. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came in cheerful, which is kind of funny considering what's about to happen. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel says, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. He's having some fighting words. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in, Gal- in-, in Gilgal. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. So, um, he, <laughs> so, so you didn't expect that, right? Like you're reading the Bible. You're not like, dude, hack somebody up. Like that's not something you look at. Let me tell you something. The Bible is not just a boring st- bunch of boring stories put together. It's actually an unfolding drama of God's history of pursuing his people so that he might redeem them back to himself and restore them to their rightful th- place of, uh, uh, with him. 
That's what the Bible is about. It's not boring. And so there's nothing about this that was boring. Dude went in undercover like a ninja and decided to chop a dude up. Like, that's not boring, right? Come on. So the elders, yeah, they knew that Sammy went in a little crazy in, in the previous scene and was like, okay, maybe he's coming here to do the same thing. So, of course, I'd be trembling too. Dude's crazy, right? And, and so, but instead what happens is we see that Samuel actually came in to give them an abundance of grace that they never expected. He came in to anoint not only a new king, but a better king that they already had. And so God told Samuel that he was going to go choose a king among Jesse's family. And as he goes to Jesse's family, he, obviously he's going to pick the oldest son to start with. And, and he approaches Eliab and, and says in verse 6, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And here's what God's response is in verse 7. Here's what he says. He says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on, his, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees... Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, the premise of this whole thing is chapter 13, verse uh, 14, and it says the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. He's not looking at the stature or the guy's appearance. He's looking at his heart. And so when the Bible uses this word heart, you have to ask the question, well, what does it mean by heart? Because clearly it doesn't mean the flesh heart, like the actual physical heart in your chest, Right? And so simply put, what the heart is, it's the essence of who you are. It's, it's the core of your being. It's, it's the motivating factor of your life. It's, it's exactly who you are. So when he looks into the heart, he's looking into what drives you, what motivates you. The heart is, the, is what guides you in what you do think and say. That's what the heart is. And so when God says he's seeking a man after his heart, he's looking for a man that has his heart. He's looking for, for a man that, that has his desires and cares for what he cares for. And he wants to look for a man that is motivated by God and not motivated by other persons. So what God is communicating here is that he's looking at the depths of you. He, he sees all of your motives, all of your thoughts, all of your desires, and he knows them. He's not impressed by the way you look. He doesn't care about your, your successful accolades that you got going on. He doesn't care how much weight you can bench press. Listen, God doesn't look at a girl and say, man, you got some really pretty earrings or your hair is dead right. Like he doesn't say that. Like he, he doesn't look in your house and say, man, you have a massive house. This is beautiful. It's amazing. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't look at your haircut or the fresh cut on your beard and say, man, dude, you looking sharp. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about those things. He can't be swayed by your Bible knowledge or your amount of church attendance or how much you give or how good of a person you are. He's unimpressed by it. His standards are completely different than ours because he looks at the heart. And, and he actually proves that in our passage here in verses 10 through 13 when he comes to look at Jesse's sons. And so Samuel goes up and he looks at the first seven sons of Jesse and he's like, man, obviously one of these guys have to be it, right? So he starts with the oldest, which makes sense because, man, he's probably bigger, stronger, faster, more knowledgeable, has more experience, probably can work, and probably has fought in battle at some point. So of course he would go through them. But as he's ticking through these guys, he's like, nope, not that one. Next, not that one. Dab, not that one. Like, he's just not choosing any of those guys, right? So remember what God is looking for, though. He's looking for a man after his own heart. And, and you have Jesse sitting here thinking, man, one of my kids have to be the king, right? 
And God continues to say, no, I'm not looking at the exterior. I'm looking for an ordinary man with a different heart. And so who does he choose? He chooses David, right? Like He picks David, and, and don't be deceived. David is very, very ordinary. He is an ordinary man. He was given one of the lowliest of jobs as possible, being a shepherd of sheep. Here, here's why it's considered to be lowly. It, first of all, they would place usually servants in that place. But secondly, is, is because here's what a shepherd does. They watch the sheep, they feed the sheep, they sleep with the sheep, and repeat. Like, there's no thinking involved in that, right? Like, sheep are dumb, and so all you have to do is just be out there, watch them, make sure they don't hurt themselves, and, and that's it. So he didn't have to be super intelligent to do this job. And to make it so bad, here's how we know that, he's, that David was ordinary as well. The biggest event probably for his family was about to happen where one of his brothers would be anointed king, and his dad didn't bother to invite him to the show. In fact, later on, when, when, when Samuel asks Jesse about his other son, he doesn't even mention his name. And so not only is he the youngest, and he's and basically a servant in their home, verse 12 says that he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes. Now, when we first looked like that, we're like, oh, yeah, see, now, now we're seeing some good stuff. No, I don't think that was a compliment, actually. Uh, what, what I think this is actually pointing to is something, I think they were describing him much like I would describe my good friend Austin, okay? Like, he's small in stature. He's, he's got childlike features, a beautiful face with beautiful flowing hair, unlike myself. But if you look at that dude, you're not thinking, man, that guy's got a lot of fight in him. You're just not thinking that, right? Like, and so in the same thing with David. When they looked at David, you're like, he's not a king. You, when you look at him, he doesn't look like a king. He's not going to fight anybody. He's, he's rooty and, 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 and beautiful, right? Like that, that's what he's saying about David. And so what this passage is pointing to is that that ruddy, beautiful kid, it had nothing to do with his external appearance and everything to do with his internal heart and the fact that he was a, a, a man that was after an extraordinary God's heart. That's why God chose him. And as we look through his story, it, 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 what we will see throughout this entire series is that's, that's, that's what's true about David. In verse 13, it says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from the, that day forward, meaning God was with him, and God the Holy Spirit was with this man. He was with him throughout his entire journey leading to the throne. You see, there was nothing extraordinary about David, but the anointing of the Holy Spirit changes things for them, right? Like it, it empowers him to move forward, to, to do some of God's special work. That's what the anointing means. It means the Spirit of God doing a special work for in and through an individual to do God's special work and plan. So not necessarily because he had done anything or accomplished anything great, but it simply was because he was an ordinary man anointed by an extraordinary God. And after he's anointed by the Spirit, the story turns a little bit and, and looks back at King Saul. And, and what we see is that Saul uh, was used by God to actually accomplish his goals for David. And so let's look at it. Verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play, play well and bring him to me. 
One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with me, with him. So God removes this, uh, the Holy Spirit anointment from Saul, right? And then allows an evil spirit to torment him. And then he calls David in to serve this tormented, like, normal king. Now, now I don't know about you. When I look at that, I got really confused. Because I'm like, wait a minute. David, just a minute ago, was anointed as king. And now you want him to come and serve the guy he's supposed to replace? If, if I'm David sitting there, I'm confused. I'm like, wait a minute, God, somebody must be lying to me about my call in my life, right? Because this isn't lining up. And I, and I think that that's how we think about circumstances in life, right? We, we don't look at internally what's going on. We look at the external circumstances and say, man, there's something that's not adding up. I've heard of people coming in saying, man, God must be blessing me. Things are so great in front of me while God is back here and they're not even paying attention, I've heard people come in and they're like, man, God must be against me right now. He must be rejecting me because everything is not going my way. And I've, I've heard people tell me this that are so, so close to me because it's myself. I'm one of those people who will look at the external and like, man, God must be blessing. It must be good. And at the same time, not giving the deserved attention that, he, that I need to get from him. I'm not looking at him. I'm not looking at his heart and my heart and the circumstance. I'm just saying, man, things are going great, so God must be blessing. And in the times that are difficult, I, I will look at God and say, man, why? why? Why are you rejecting me right now? And I just want to say that's not how God works. At least normatively, God doesn't work in that way. And in this situation with David, that's not how he's working. God is using David's normal, ordinary abilities for his extraordinary plan. That's what he's doing here. Look at verse 18. He is skillful in playing the lyre or the harp, a man of valor, which is strength, a man of war. Okay, I just got to pause for a second. A guy that plays the harp and a man of war doesn't make sense together, right? Like, I don't understand that. Culturally speaking, you can't take Rambo and take some pianist and put them together. Like, it just doesn't work. But somehow they got that together. I just wanted to point that out because it's awkward and weird. But anyway, moving on. Then it says that he's prudent in speech and a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. Let's double click on that real quick. It says the Lord is with him. So through the circumstances, they, they may not seem favorable for him, but the Lord is with David. And people noticed that the Lord was with him, right? And so Christian in the room, do people notice that God is with you? Do people notice that you have a relationship with God? Now, now wait a minute. I'm not saying do people notice that you're a good person and make all the right decisions. That's not what I'm saying. I'm asking, do people recognize that you have a relationship with the living God in your life? Because if, if, if they do, they will see not only from your actions, but also from your words that you have a relationship with the living God. Let me give you an example. So say, for instance, you're having a conversation with a coworker who's a friend of yours. You're talking about the situation from last night. So last night, your wife was, so just say your husband. Your wife disrespected you. You responded poorly and then also went back and apologized. And so this is how that conversation could go. It could go one of two ways. The first one could be, okay, you're like, yeah, man. I lost it last night. My wife, like, she was tripping, and so I went off on her, and then it just didn't go well. It kind of spiraled out of control, right? We've had these conversations before, if you haven't, you're lying. Anyway, um, and then from there, I kind of walked away. I felt bad about it, so I went back to her, and I was like, man, babe, sorry. I'm sorry that I did that. I, I overreacted. 
So that's one way, and, and that makes sense. That's a, it's a fair way. That's probably how the story goes. But I, I think there's a second way that goes with that, and let me preface it with this. I'm not saying that we need to force spirituality or force Jesus on every single conversation we have. Like, I want it to be, it needs to be real in us and really happening. Like, if Jesus is infiltrating every single aspect of your life, then, man, you, you won't be able to help to, but to talk about him in every circumstance. And so here's how it could go. Say, man, last night, my wife said something extremely disrespectful toward me. And the way I responded was not as a man that's full of grace and truth in the Lord, but I responded as a man of the world. Like, I went off on my wife, and, and, and I just lost it completely. And, and as I walked away, Jesus convicted my heart and said, man, do you love me? And do I love your wife? Yeah. Then, then your call in your life is to love her as I have loved you. And so then I went back to my wife and I said, babe, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God. Please forgive me. What I've done is contrary to God's grace and mercy upon us. In fact, it's self-righteousness that's motivating it. Please forgive me. You see the difference? The difference in that conversation, like, it's, it's saying, man, I have a relationship with the living God, and he interacts with me moment by moment, day by day. He's not just something that I sit on the shelf on Sunday mornings. When people know that you've been with the living God, it's not going to be just your actions, but it's got to be your words, too. Acts 4.13 says this about Peter and John. It says, Now when, this, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common, which means ordinary men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do people recognize that you have been with Jesus? These men in this passage recognized that David had been with God and that David was in the service of the Lord and was faithful to follow through with whatever God would have for him because he trusted God. He trusted what God had for him was good and a part of his loving plan. You see, to be a person that's after God's own heart, you actually have to spend time with God. One of the most discouraging things that I think can be true of us is that we proclaim on Facebook and Twitter and sometimes with our mouth that, man, I'm a person who loves God and Jesus is amazing and, and church was awesome. And, and, and I serve the God of the universe, but yet on the day-to-day, moment-by-moment things of our life, there's no difference. There's no difference. And you say that you know the God of the universe that breathed life into existence. There has to be something different. And I'm not just telling you, I'm telling me too. Like, there should be something different. There should be an obedient, trust, loving faith in the Savior that says that my life is different. It should look different. So, in our circumstance with David, this had to be awkward, right? So, he's called into this place to serve a king that he's going to eventually take his spot. And so, we'll pick it up in verse 19. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered the service, and and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. See, David trusted God with his ordinary gifts. 
to serve this ordinary king, but not without God's empowerment. He served God in this with his empowerment. Like he had talents and abilities, but, but that wasn't the thing that made him effective. What made him effective is that God was with him. God will use your normal gifts and even the skills and opportunity that he's given you, he will utilize those for extraordinary purposes. We just have to be faithful like David and say yes. So, so I know a guy who's, who's really like impressed my heart and, and challenged my heart to think through that in my, in my own life. Like he's challenged me to say, man, am I living based on what I see out here? Or am I evaluating my own heart and God's heart and, and, and testing that instead? His name is Ricky Kennedy. Uh, he's one of the pastors on our team. He's an amazing man. Um, so Ricky, um, Ricky, to know Ricky's resume is to know that like Ricky has been in ministry for over 12 years. He, he's been in ministry for over 12 years. He also has probably not only more degrees in, in education than we have, but probably a better education than everyone on our staff. Uh, he's older than we are, prehistoric to some extent, but he's older than some of us. And, 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 but yet, Ricky probably has more experience and more knowledge than anyone in the room when it comes to our staff team. And, and so if you look at this guy's resume, it would say, man, this guy's a lead pastor. If you look at his resume, that's, that's what his exter- external accolades would have earned him. And in fact, he's been offered several senior lead pastor jobs, and yet... In his humility, Ricky didn't consider himself to be extraordinary, but rather an ordinary guy called out by an extraordinary God. And so he said yes to being on our team, and I'm praising God for that. Because he set the standard that God doesn't look at the external, but he looks at the heart. And so the the reason why I say that is because Ricky knows that God cares about the heart, and so that's what Ricky cares about. He doesn't care about his accolades, but he cares about God's love and grace and glory to be manifest with God, within God's people. And he doesn't care about what title he has for that. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But that's hard for us to work with, right? So it, it's hard for us to operate in that because we live in this world on one end that we've been performing for our whole life, right? Like, we know that the entire world looks at it and says, okay, will you perform for me? Will you look good for me? And that's how they judge you. That's how they decide whether or not they accept you. And yet we have this God on the other end that says, no, I look at your heart. I care about the inside. And so how you wrestle in that tension? Don't live for the world or yourself. Look at how God would, would look at you as a loving, affectionate father. Care about that. What others think about you actually changes from day to day, circumstance by circumstance, based upon how you perform. But here's what God says. Son, daughter, you're mine, and I love you. Selah. That's what he says. He says, you're mine, and I love you. There's no addition to it. There's not, but if you do this, or but if you say this, or if you think this. He says, I love you. And our extraordinary God is trying to show us himself here in this passage. Uh, A lot of times I think we have the temptation to look at David's story and and insert ourselves in David's position and say, okay, I can relate to David in that. But, But quite frankly, this isn't about you. This story is not about you. In fact, David's story is about him pointing to someone greater. David's story is designed to point us to Jesus. 
He, he was a good king. David was a good king, but he wasn't the best king. He wasn't a perfect king. David was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't God. Jesus is God and always will be God. What we'll look at and, and we'll continue to see as we walk through the series is that, man, David had a very ordinary life for the most part. And then when you look at Jesus' first 30 years of his life, pretty ordinary. In fact, most of us don't know what happened. In fact, none of us do because there's only a couple circumstances that are mentioned about Jesus. One time when he runs away from his mommy and daddy is about all we get. It's pretty normal. He's a carpenter guy. But then, just like David was anointed, Jesus was anointed at his baptism and he starts his ministry. And that ministry wasn't to step up on the throne and say, hey, I'm the king in the universe. No, it was actually as a humble servant king who would ultimately and humbly give his life for his people. He died on the cross for his people as a servant king. That's what David's pointing to. David's pointing to that kind of God. So this isn't a story of some guy who was at the lowest of lows, and all of a sudden God came in and blessed him, and man, that opportunity's coming for you. That's, that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about, it's, a, it's about ordinary sinful man being able to claim the victory of an extravagant God. That's what this story is about. So if you're in the room thinking in your heart, man, my heart's not always after God's heart. Like, I I don't feel like people know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I fail miserably, constantly fail at these things. My heart just doesn't go after God. There's some good news. God not only looks at your heart, but he has the power to transform it. That's the good news for us, that if we place our faith in Jesus, he has the power to transform our hearts. So if you're in the room and you're like, I'm miserable, I'm tired of working and trying and trying so hard, what he's saying is you don't have to. Stop trying. I love you. You're mine, son or daughter. You can be refreshed. You can be be made clean. You can have relief if you just confess, man, I don't have it together because I don't. You don't have it together. You don't. Just say, yeah, I don't have it together. I need you. I'm a sinful man before a holy God. I need you, Jesus. And that's where the refreshment comes because his victory is our victory. And if that's true, then the refreshment, David had the Holy Spirit rush upon him, but if you've placed your faith in Jesus, God the Holy Spirit not only is with us, but he's in us. Working out, transforming our hearts to be more like Jesus. That's how we get to be a people after God's own heart. That's how that happens, is that he comes and resides in us, and he starts to shape and mold our hearts. He, he starts to, to, to mold who we are and what we're motivated by to align more with him. God wants to empower us by his spirit, using our ordinary life to accomplish his extraordinary plan. Amen? Let's pray.